wanted me to point out this uh, mascot, which I have to share with you all. This is, uh, his name is Dilly, and uh, this is sort of my um, introduction to Japan before my first invitation to Japan, which came in the summer of 1993 from the Japanese government. I went to a drugstore in Washington called Rodman's, and there was this creature. And in my mind, what did Japan represent to so many of us in the world but the Godzilla films? Now, of course, he's a very mini-me version of Godzilla. But uh, since Kay mentioned that I'm active on Facebook, if you look on Facebook, my latest update, and I try not to overdo it, is a picture of Dilly with the original Godzilla outside of Toho Studios. So I actually went there on this pilgrimage and took my mascot. And he's been with me ever since, every trip I've made. So, and um, I can't go into too much detail about Dilly because I've got 30 minutes to try to <laughs> give you all a landscape of nation branding. And I start out with this very gray slide, but it's the focus should be on telling America's story to the world. So when I worked at the USIA from 1992 to 1994, it was during the Bill Clinton years. And USIA was a government propaganda agency. We can talk about the use of the word propaganda. The euphemism for propaganda is public diplomacy. But the reason why I started with this slide is so that you all here would think about if you took America out of this slogan and put telling Japan's story to the world, what might that be? And so I want you all to think beyond tonight. In a way, I'm giving you a little bit of a homework assignment, but I will not be grading your assignment. So these are just two of the books that I uh, got published in Japanese, and the one on the left is probably the one that I'm most famous for. It was telling the story of USIA after I worked there, because when I was working there, I couldn't publish something like this. And then the other one in the original English is called Information War. I'm going to move through these slides very quickly. I present to you Edward R. Murrow. I hope everyone is aware of Murrow. Murrow, in terms of a nation brand, is our most respected journalist in the United States, in US history. Started out covering the Blitzkrieg in London uh, at the rooftop of the BBC, and then went on to be a very successful TV journalist. He didn't like TV originally, but he reluctantly took it on. This is an undertold story. He went from journalism which is all about objectivity and the facts, let the facts lead. And he became JFK's chief propaganda uh, or propagandist for the US government. And this was from 1961 until January 1964, after Kennedy's death. And it was at that time where really the Murrow brand merged with US government propaganda. So what do we mean by public diplomacy. This, in the US context, refers to communications broadly and relationship building in the context of influencing foreign publics. 
And so I'll talk about this more, about how public diplomacy is really directed outward. And it is historically seen in the context of national security and foreign policy objectives. So we automatically default on government when we think of public diplomacy. Vital to nation security. And of course, the process of public diplomacy impacts a nation's brand and reputation. Murrow, there are a couple of famous quotes associated with him. When he came on board, there was the debacle of the Cuban crisis with the attempt, uh, if you read up on the uh, trying to take out Castro, who was anti-US. And Murrow afterwards said, when it comes to public diplomacy, don't have us in just on the you know, proverbial crash landings after the crisis. Have us on, in on the beginning, before the takeoffs. And generally with public diplomacy, and I think related to those of you who work in PR, PR is often brought in when there's a crisis. So it's often brought in after the fact. And that's something that's similar to the work that I did at uh, USIA. He also was famous for this phrase called last three feet. And of course, in the Japanese context, the last meter. <laughs> Just to be. <laughs> and uh, this is referring to that bubble of space between two people facing each other in conversation. Murrow was very big on the potential influence for change at the interpersonal level. So you can't just have mass media do your work for you. Although Voice of America is uh, very much involved in what we did. The other couple of quotes that I'll share uh, is related to truth. When Murrow went before the US Congress in the context at the height of the Cold War, in the 1960s, he said that we are engaging in propaganda, but the closer we can get to truth, the better off we are. So he said the most important reason is that truth is the best propaganda. This was his dig against the Soviet Union. So it was giving an advantage, a comparative advantage, to the US government. And then his probably his most famous quote is this, to be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. And I can't do his wonderful velvet uh, sort of baritone. To be credible, we must be truthful. It is as simple as that. Although, as Kay said, I don't think it is that simple. <laughs> Maybe it was simpler then. Uh, this is just showing you Bill Clinton. When he got elected, he came in with this mandate for change. And what that meant in the context of global PR was the Clinton doctrine. And the feeling was, and this is one of my first cautionary notes looking at Japan, we in the US felt like, hey, we won. We won the Cold War. And so as a result of that, we made the error in judgment of predicting and projecting onto the world that the world would embrace American values, policies, and know-how, transfer of technology. And the drain on the US budget was the containment of the USSR. So Clinton's doctrine was called enlargement. And it was making the world safe for trade, economics, US interests in the world that would, of course, advantage us. 
we got involved at USIA in pushing NAFTA. So there are some parallels here when you hear about TPP, right? Although TPP, I don't think people are talking about it on the tips of their tongues, maybe, the way that we were at USIA. Now, this is a funny theory that I have to share with you. One, I've got an image, a symbol of US propaganda, if you will, uh, maybe bad eating uh, <laughs> habits. The golden arches theory is by Thomas Friedman, who wrote The Lexus and the Olive Tree and still writes for the New York Times. And he actually put this out first in an article and then later in his book. And he said, no two countries that both have McDonald's have fought a war against each other since each got a McDonald's. Yeah, I kid you not, this guy <laughs> is still at the New York Times. Shortly after that, we had the US was involved in NATO bombing in Bosnia in 2000, and people rioted and actually uh, destroyed a McDonald's there. And then Thomas Friedman had to comment, and he said, well, that's the exception that just proves the rule. His point was about globalization and the sort of naivete that we often have that if you just focus on development, then all these other little worries will go away. And that's just, again, showing Bill Clinton uh, being true to the McDonald's theory. By the way, he has since really changed his diet, but this was a famous <laughs> sort of, he would do a jog around Washington, and you would see the president, and then he would end up at a McDonald's. So he doesn't do that now. Bill Clinton had a close relationship with Barbara Streisand, and you may remember her very famous song, The Way We Were. This is just really, again, a symbolism of our sort of sense of innocence that we thought the U.S. would embrace U.S. values and policy. Remember, she said, can it be that it was all so simple then? I was going to sing it, but I don't think, <laughs> maybe later. Or has time rewritten every line? It did almost seem innocent then because it was post-Cold War era. So it was like, oh, that's behind us now. This is probably my most scholarly slide, so if you all will just bear with me. We social scientists love to debate terms. And so, of course, on the left with propaganda, the image I have is ISIL or ISIS here on the left. The image on the right is more of a typical public diplomacy program. With propaganda, this may not be anything new to you all. It's one-way communication. It is in the context of a righteous cause, of sort of our right and our might. So it's not about really trying to build mutual understanding. Influence is everything. So however you can influence your target, that's all you need. You, you can sense here that ethics sort of go by the wayside. Uh, the language is very much we versus they. So it's not inclusive. And the, it's always in the context of clashing values, to use sort of the Samuel Huntington uh, uh, version here. And you listen, you listen to your opponent only in the context of how can I target or take out this uh, target, I mean, how can I take out my opponent? The system of propaganda is very tight and closed. Public diplomacy, and this is a message to Japan, 
uh, as it would be in many countries throughout the world, we emphasize two-way communication, especially now. When I worked at USIA, I'm going to sound like Abe Lincoln and you know, we walked forever to school, but we didn't have the World Wide Web. We had just started with the internet. I think YouTube just celebrated its 10th anniversary, so Twitter and Facebook, Facebook 2004, all of these channels of communication, the technology we didn't have. So we were still emphasizing person-to-person -person communication, exchange of persons. And with public diplomacy, thinking back on Ed Murrow, truth and credibility are the most important aspects to the process of public diplomacy. Reputation is everything as opposed to influence. If you lose your good name, for instance, related to reputation, let me give you an example. If you are the head of state and you say something that is incongruous with public opinion of that country, that impacts reputation, the brand image of that country in the world. Because wherever there are these fissures, wherever there are these differences of opinion that are very sharp, that allows people to view you in a more negative context. So you want to have more shared values is sort of the language that we use. The language of good or effective public diplomacy is we and our language. So when I have taught in Israel, which was mentioned before, I taught a course in Brand Israel, and I told the students when I walked in, I said to them, how's that Brand Israel working for you? And they all sort of grumbled, and they said, well, we are having a difficult time because the Palestinians are more effective. They immediately put it in the context of conflict. And I said, well, one of your challenges seems to be an emphasis on security, and security in terms of our security, you know, ours versus theirs. And they, they agreed that that was a challenge for them because whenever you use this us versus them language, you're setting up barriers that tend to fester, especially when you get into a heightened sensibility of this year with the 70th anniversary where we are anticipating what the prime minister will say. He formed a blue ribbon committee of advisors. You all may have read about that. That's how important it is, how he crafts that message. So I mentioned shared values earlier. And effective public diplomacy we also talk about in terms of active listening. Now, there are people who go around Hillary Clinton when she ran for office. I'm using a US example, forgive me, but she probably will run for president. She utilized a listening tour to win her uh, seat in New York because she was not originally from New York. Karen Hughes, who was the top public diplomacy advisor to George W. Bush, also went out on a listening tour to the Middle East. It can backfire on you, though, if it's more talking, as I'm doing, than listening. So <laughs> if you say, I'm going on a listening uh, tour, then you really need to be contemplative, you need to be quiet, you need to really utilize the two-to-one ratio of ears to mouth. And I think that's an advantage that Japan has when you look at values related to Japan and how education 
uh, it emphasizes very active listening, that can be an advantage. It doesn't have to be something where you say, well, we're not good at promotion because we don't speak up. There's a real value in listening. You learn a lot more by being an active listener. And then the public diplomacy system is more fluid and open. Okay, moving along here. In terms of looking at a nation and related to persuading other people, this is something that is hard to accept, and it's a limitation of persuasion. And it's that you can really only persuade those who are persuadable. So what we often do, who are, those of us in nation branding, we tend to want to win hearts and minds of everyone. So we don't pay attention to the limitations of persuadability. In terms of those who are persuadable, it is only those who are open to agreeing with you. So if they're against you no matter what, their ears aren't open to your message. Their eyes aren't open to even being sort of uh, persuaded to your point of view. That's one, another caveat. Also, in terms of persuasion, the most effective persuasion is self-persuasion. This has been around a long time in the literature, but I think it applies more now than ever because we are living in an age where collectively publics around the world feel manipulated. They feel that the, the messages that come at them are very much designed by and favoring institutions that sponsor that message. So at the individual level, we like to think that we come to conclusions based on our own individual uh, perspective. We like to take facts and then judge for ourselves. So you, that's something to keep in mind again, that the most effective persuasion, how you then translate that is your message has to be not about yourself, but more about uh, playing into the needs and the wants of those you're trying to influence so that they can draw their own conclusions. Well, here's the news. <laughs> here's my other sort of truism. I know this from having worked for the US government. Uh, US is not at the top of the country brand index. We've seen our so-called soft power and our traction in the world decline. And uh, in part, this is due to universally governments now not being as persuasive because they're seen as more self-interested in their own preservation. So government-led one-way persuasion is often very ineffectual. And it will work only if your opponent, as in the context of the Cold War, the US had a comparative advantage because the Soviet Union was seen as more objectionable to uh, many publics around the world. And then finally, a truism is you have to determine uh, what a target audience already believes about you. And this is where you have to put an emphasis on research and really getting to know the other countries, monitoring public opinion, but really utilizing that as a way to help shape your message. Um, I would add another truism here is that we no longer live in a world 
divided by speaking to a domestic media audience and a foreign media audience. That's, those, those days are over. So for USIA, we had a foreign press center. And so when the public affairs officer went to speak there, the message was shaping US foreign policy goals. So it was telling about what the US government was doing, but in a context to our advantage. And in a global media environment, there is no distinction between domestic and foreign. And I think sometimes we forget that. That's just a silly little uh, penguin motivational speaker sitting on top of ice and he's giving his, uh, his, his motivational speech. Just want to share some images with you. I've written a lot. At, I'm an Abe fellow, which is in reference to uh, Shintaro Abe the uh, former foreign minister, and it is funded through the Japan Foundation. Abe is certainly a brand name for Japan. And this is last year's Time Magazine, The Patriot. And the print is rather small, but it says something here about kind of a worry that uh, the world has that there is too much sort of uh, assertiveness and nationalism, revitalization of nationalism. And then, of course, here I'm sharing more of the softer, kind of the cultural aspects of Japan, the way of tea, sakura, the cherry blossoms. What you end up with is a clash of narratives at times because you have the government objectives, which is pushing foreign policy and national security, and then you have the cultural people who maybe they don't see themselves really in concert with that. Um, when it comes to Japan specifically, ambivalent images only increase tension. And by that I mean when there are very contrasting images about a place in a person's mind, that creates a lot of, again, what we call cognitive dissonance. You want to bring those images more in concert with each other. Um, you have to accept, too, the limitations that I spoke about earlier. You're never going to please everyone, so get rid of that. There will always be detractors. And in the age of the blogosphere, in the age where uh, we were talking earlier today about everybody's a journalist, it seems, uh, you can just put up your blog and you can have influence, um, You've got a lot of competing messages there, and so I think we get worked up about how can we win everybody over, and you can't do it. Uh, talk and behavior related to coercion, so-called hard power, diminishes naturally soft power. Soft power, probably everybody knows in this room, uh, is, uh, was coined by Joseph Nye, and he was the former head of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and worked in the Clinton administration as an assistant secretary of defense in national security, international security. And he talks about soft power having to do with values that people want to imitate. Uh, and uh, perception is greater than reality is a kind of uh, one that we have to remind ourselves of. So when you think that facts alone will do it to get your message across, it's not true because perception, how people feel about you, is stronger than any facts. So again, we tend to make that error. The USIA did it and we do it 
today. And faith and belief, which are sort of amorphous, are stronger than using logical reasoning. Changing minds and behavior is difficult. And as in marketing, you've probably seen that before, you can only lie once, we often say. Now, that's a uh, sort of been around a long time in marketing textbooks, and I'm not sure if... Uh, maybe you can rehabilitate yourself, but if the perception is you shared a big lie and you were deceitful, that will really damage your nation brand for a long time to come. Um, I want to share this quote with you, and uh, it might surprise you when this was published. This is about the role of the media, and the quote goes, it takes months, even years, to build up the respect that gives soft power, and all that is gained can be lost in a moment. The rest of this goes when the prime minister or leading politicians make provocative remarks, again, according to the audience, the global audience, that stir mistrust or anger, Japan quickly loses its attractiveness to other countries. Now, what year do you think this was published? 2015, 2014? <laughs> it's 2007. And it was an article in Asahi Shimbun called Soft Power. Strive to be a caring nation so as to help others that are less fortunate. Had to do with the image of Japan as a leading ODA country, as a leading country when people think about Japan as a humanitarian leader, as a country with its self-defense forces that have not killed a human being in the world. I mean, that's powerful. But again, I'm probably getting a little bit too <laughs> political here. Brand Japan. This is one. I had to share the, uh, of course, the famous, the three monkeys here. But the so-called snow monkeys, I guess we know them in the, in the English-speaking world as the snow monkeys. And the snow monkeys are highly intelligent. Uh, they are a big attraction for people coming from overseas. And part of the reason, part of the appeal, is that they know how to have fun. And they hang out in the onsen. <laughs> and I think sometimes with nation branding, we get so serious about what we're doing. And we get so caught up in it that we lose our sense of fun, which is why I brought <laughs> Dilly along here. Here are other images. Of course, Fuji being the image of Japan and the, and the gate that uh, lingers there in Hiroshima. Uh, this slide here, and I'm getting close to the end now, is a slide that I wanted to emphasize when I taught at Sophia University I said to the students, I would talk to them endlessly about nation brand Japan. And I said, but I'm going to tell you, I had them sort of, I said, now listen, I'm going to tell you what the key is to uh, branding Japan. And it really comes down to, you can do a lot of great programs, but the human capital, the people, is the, that's the greatest asset, I don't care what country it is. And the more engaged the people are in the process, the more potential for positive change. When you have a lot of disengagement, a lot of not caring about this, it harms that. And of course, in the US, we didn't always have a whole lot of involvement there. In terms of communication, just a last, I mean, again, your communicators. 
Uh, you can't make a person understand intellectually. You have to be as straightforward as possible and not force acceptance to your point of view. And in terms of telling Japan's story, this is my last slide. I read a book. Uh, I was intrigued by Steve Jobs and his interest in Zen Buddhism. And I came across, finally, a list of books that had influenced his work at Apple and outside of Apple. And, uh, and uh, one of them is called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And we are in a room full of experts. And of course, every communication program needs experts. But in this book, there was a, a fascinating point made, which is that you don't have to be an expert to engage in nation branding. And in fact, there's a value to being a beginner. Because, as they say in, in this book, the beginner's mind is the mind of compassion. And when our mind is compassionate, it is boundless. When you get to the level of expert, you tend to believe your own truth, and sometimes you fail to keep yourself open and compassionate and always focused on learning and being persuaded by other people. So I wanted to leave this for you because there are so many positive stories and attributes of Japan that I think are underutilized. And this is where the beginners, the ones who are new to this process, would be very helpful to us. So I'm going to end there and open it up to questions. Thank you so much.